Hello and welcome to the Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined remotely through the magic powers of Skype by my fellow co-host, Jessica Sharl. What's going on? Joe Wolfon. What up? Uh, we're gathered here on a early Sunday morning to uh, break down the Jimmy Butler trade, which uh, just took place on Saturday. Um, we've already written a bit of a reaction piece about three immediate questions um, stemming from the trade. You can check that out on the Score app. But uh, let's break the trade down in more detail. So for those who missed it, which I don't know how you would have missed it if you're a basketball fan, but here it is. Jimmy Butler finally traded um, You know him along with Justin Patton to the uh, Philadelphia 76ers uh, for Robert Covington, Dario Saric, Jared Bayless, and a 2022 second-round pick. Um, I think, first off, what was your feeling when this thing happened? Because for me, it was just relief, because I I really didn't want to talk about Jimmy Butler too much more beyond this in terms of his trade demand. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I think there was a little bit of shock not necessarily the fact that Jimmy Butler got traded, but that it was in the Sixers and it just kind of randomly popped up on a Saturday afternoon. Um, you know, usually there's a little bit of smoke before the fire. And the last smoke we had really heard with Jimmy Butler was either that the the deal with the Heat had fallen through. Um, and then after that, it was that, you know, Butler and the Timberwolves were prepared to have to stick it out together for a while. So I think my initial reaction was still shocked, despite the fact we all knew it was going to come sooner than later. But if you watch, like, I don't know if either of you guys watched that uh, Wolves-Kings game, like the last game that Butler played Friday night. with Minnesota, that that was the fire, you know? Like, um, it was ridiculous. Like, their execution at the end of that game was completely appalling. And Butler was terrible. Like, Towns was terrible at the end of that game. It was one of the more dispiriting things that I've ever seen on an NBA court. Um, and I think it was clear by the time that game ended that they just had to do something immediately um because that team was so utterly broken and look like that team won 47 games last year uh you know despite butler missing a bunch of time like they were a solid western conference playoff team they're four and nine right now like their season is i mean potentially ruined irreparably at this point in time like i don't even know if they're going to be able to get back into the playoff mix in the west uh given how much ground they already have to make up so i think you know, just them them being able to move on from this and like finally start their season in earnest is a good thing. Uh, the fact that they waited as long as they did is not. But uh, my reaction, I think, was that it was pretty fair. Um, and I think when we talked about uh, potential deals before the season started, this was more or less like the kind of framework of a deal I proposed from the Sixers side. I think I had Zaire Smith going the other way as well, but given that uh, Butler has probably decreased his trade value since the season started, I, I don't think this is that big a surprise, and I think it's pretty fair for both teams. Yeah, I mean, going back to the Butler point, I mean, the Timberwolves had lost five straight. Um, and it's very interesting because Butler had played 39 minutes, 43 minutes, and then 41 minutes in the three games, <laughs> in his final three games with Thibodeau. Uh, yeah. And honestly, even Butler snapped on Thibodeau, man. Even Butler was like, you know, there's 14 other players on the team. Like, what are you doing playing me this many minutes? And I think basically from that point onward, Butler, you know, Thibodeau was like, you know what? You can demand a trade. You can cause a ruckus at practice, but you cannot question my minutes distribution. <laughs> if you do that, you're getting <laughs> traded. And uh, you got traded to the Sixers. So uh, obviously the Sixers side of the deal is more interesting than the Timberwolves, which I think we all agree that um, 
you know, they're not going to make the playoffs. And this is just uh, kind of a disaster for them just on the whole. But um, in terms of the Sixers, I think this is very interesting because it's not the most seamless fit, right? I think there are going to be um, a lot of changes for the Sixers in terms of how they play moving forward, um, especially with, you know, there's going to be an immediate struggle. Well, not even a struggle, but just sort of um, a coming of terms between, you know, Ben Simmons uh, Joel Embiid and also Jimmy Butler because I think those three are all very strong personalities and all three of them really like to have the ball in their hands and um, only two of them can actually operate without the ball uh, which is Butler and Embiid uh, you know Simmons is really a non-shooter so Cash I mean how do you foresee the situation working out for the Sixers at least uh, in the short term yeah in the short term I think it could get a little messy I mean you mentioned um, the fact that all three of these guys to be to be most effective, need the ball in their hands, and you can even throw in Markel Fultz in that conversation as well when he is on the court. Which you know he's starting games for that team, and he needs the ball in his hands to be effective. Um, if if they want it to work out as seamlessly as possible, then just by the nature of Jimmy Butler being the only guy among them that is a dependable shooter, um, it would make the most sense for Jimmy Butler to be a little more off ball in this system. But good luck telling that to Jimmy Butler. Like I, you know, he might want his minutes to come down, but I don't think he wants his usage and his like team depend dependability when he's on the court to come down. I just think that's going to be a hard sell, even though it's the right one. Um, if if he's off the ball a little more, then you know maybe Ben Simmons gets a little more room to operate, and Markel Fultz, since he can at least do some off the bounce things, gets a little more room to operate. And beat I'm not really worried about because I feel like he's the kind of guy that'll find his offense either like in the post, off offensive rebounds. You can dump it into him sometimes. He'll still find his shots on the perimeter. But yeah, I think I'd be more worried about Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz because I just don't know how they'd be effective on the offensive end if they don't have the ball in their hands. I will say though that defensively, I think the potential here is scary. Um, say what you will about Ben Simmons not being able to shoot and and you know Jimmy Butler's off court issues in Chicago and Minnesota, but. You've got Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid playing the bulk of your minutes every night. That's going to be a scary defensive team. Like You're talking about the ability to defend at an elite level, like on the perimeter, in space, in the post, at the rim. That That's where I think their bread will be buttered. Yeah, I agree to that point. Like I think the defense will be good enough to you know effectively render the offensive concerns moot. Um, but I think... The first step to me is Fultz has probably got to go back to the bench because I like those four guys cannot all play together. I don't think. And the only thing Joe I'd say is like, who would you start at the four if that's the case? Because what I was thinking I mean, is Chan- they get at the like start both Chandler, Fultz. Maybe. Yeah. Like that's yeah. I don't know. That, that's the thing. They are pretty thin at the four now, but um, I, I just I can't imagine that lineup really working out. But you know, if you're running Simmons out there as your point guard, and you have Redick at the two, Butler at the three. Chandler at the four and and beat at the five. I think that's like a a pretty scary starting five that actually has a a decent amount of spacing. It's just the bench after that is ridiculously thin. So um, I think ultimately what they are going to end up doing or what I think they should do is like, is just staggering those three guys minutes as much as they can. So we know that, you know, Embiid and Simmons, again, it's not a seamless fit between those two guys, but they have proven that they can play together effectively. I think Butler could play effectively with either Embiid or Simmons. But I think once you're talking about the three of them playing together at the same time, then 
it starts to get uh, a little congested in that offense and, and a little bit of like my turn, your turn with the ball. Because if Butler's dominating the ball, then like what is Simmons doing off ball? Um, and I think that's a big question. And, and another thing, and we'll mention this in the breakdown that we did, but like the, the Sixers have just not really ever run much pick and roll, at least not in the configuration that they have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and Butler is a really good pick and roll ball handler. So does that mean, you know, you're going to use Simmons more as like a screener uh, and, and a cutter and a guy who's kind of getting involved in the action in that way? Because if he's like, he obviously is not going to be spotting up, right. um, you know, that's not going to do them any good. But if you're using him as like a role man, like a guy who can, uh, you know, is athletic enough to uh, kind of suck in some defenders as a dive man and also make plays in like the four on three. And Butler's a good a good enough pull-up shooter, I think, where defenses will actually have to respect him. And, and the reason that the Sixers haven't run pick-and-roll, really, is that they haven't had that guy. Like, Simmons is not a pull-up threat. Markel Fultz is not a pull-up threat. So um, you lose, like, a pretty significant threat of the pick-and-roll when you don't have that guy operating it. Um, so I think we might start to see them veer toward, like, a more traditional offense. Um and it's just going to make them a little bit more unpredictable because as much as like the, I like how their offenses function, it's been effective. Uh, and and it, I think it's been a good way to use the personnel that they have. It does make them, I think, a little bit easier to defend for elite offenses like we saw with the Celtics, um, who, you know, when when they basically are going to be disciplined and like, you know, not lose cutters and like not uh, like it can be able to like switch off ball and stuff like that. then um, I think when you're not setting ball screens, uh, it can make it like a little bit more predictable and a little bit easier to defend against. Yeah, and I think look to the point of the Sixers running more pick and roll. I think that that helps them. I think that's a change that you know obviously it's going to be difficult to navigate. Um, sort of taking the ball away from Ben Simmons and giving it to this new guy, which there's already going to be locker room um, not issues, but just sort of instability um, with Butler and his sort of reputation. You know, he flamed down in Chicago. He flamed down in. Minnesota and, uh, you know, basically the way he sort of conducted himself throughout this whole thing, I think it's going to be questions about sort of his attitude. I think he's going to try to put on a good act, though, and try to rehab his image a little bit, especially um, since he wants to actually get signed by the Sixers now. But um, the pick and roll thing, I think it's going to be a better change for the Sixers as a whole. I mean, like, you just look at it right now. They play so much through the post. They play so much of, like, you know, before it was Dario Sarge posting up of guys, you know, getting cuts off of him and, you know, Ben Simmons running his thing and then basically just, like, kind of probing without a specific game plan on a possession-by-possession basis. And that's just not a very effective offense. I mean, I think part of the thing with, you know, the Sixers training for Butler is that, like, they have also had low-key some issues um, heading into this game, I mean, or heading into this trade. Um, you know, like, they had a negative point differential, despite the fact that they were over 500. Uh, I, I've already written a piece about how I think the Bucks have, you know, surpassed the Sixers, at least, you know, the way they were constructed before. And um, one of the reasons for that is just because, look, Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz have not popped as that half-court creator, right? I mean, we think of Ben Simmons as a great player. He is a great player, but in a half-court setting, he's almost Rondo-esque. Like, it, it really does affect your offense. And the same goes for Fultz. And so you needed someone who could actually run pick-and-roll. And, and Butler is that kind of guy. I mean, 34% of his possessions this season have ended in pick-and-roll, uh, which is, you know, to give a reference for that, it's about as much as John Wall and CP3. So, you know, you know Butler's basically operating like a point guard. And I think this is a team that badly needs that point guard. The only issue is that, like, um, you know, I, I just I – just, 
it's hard for me to foresee young players sort of just stepping aside and letting this new guy basically run the show, right? And I think we saw that in Chicago. Now, granted, those young guys were like, you know, Bobby Portis and Jerry and Grant. So it wasn't like that big of a deal that Butler was running the show. But then, you know, in Minnesota, they're, you know, a little bit more clout with Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns, number one picks and everything like that. And, and then you come to the Sixers. I mean, these are young guys that had success, right? They went to the playoffs. They won 50-plus games last year. Um, you know, they both have, uh, you know, well, not rookie of the year. I mean, Embiid finished second. But really, he should have finished first. I mean, when you think about it, he was better than uh, Malcolm Brogdon by a mile. Um, and so, like, are those players going to be willing to step aside? I mean, Embiid's already said that uh, he's not changing his game. I mean, it's nice that Butler's coming, but he's not changing his game, right? And so... You know, there's a question there, and then there's also a question with Fultz. I mean, Cash already mentioned it, but like, what, what, what do you do with Markel Fultz at this point? I mean, his confidence is already shot. He's actually showing some signs of progress. He has some shows of he has some signs of life. It's just he's not going to have any opportunity at all, basically, to play in the role he's supposed to be playing in. Yeah, you know, you mentioned like Embiid saying that he's not going to change who he is, and he was even talking about like even off the court, like kind of his his comedic antics. He was saying, I'm just going to do me. Like, I'm still going to be the same fun guy. I'm still going to be on social media. Mm. Um, and it made me think of, if, if you guys remember when we had back when the Butler trade demand stuff first came up and, and we had Darren Wilson on the show to kind of like talk about him in a Minnesota perspective. And he mentioned at the time that like people don't think Jimmy Butler can mesh with millennials. And now he's going to a team that's, you know, one of the two faces of the franchise in terms of the way he conducts himself is like the NBA's ultimate millennial uh, in Joel Embiid. Like, mm. you know, half of the guy's content is just social media trash talk. So, you know, I thought of that immediately and just how it's all going to work. Um, back to the lineup thing and the kind of thing I was mentioning is that I think they might start Fultz and Reddick, at least to begin with, because Wilson Chandler is still like, I think he's played – yeah, he's played three games. He he's on a fifteen minute uh, restriction right now. Still, um, he still can't play back to backs. And I know like some people on Twitter are like, oh, maybe they'll start like Mike Muscala or something. No, I don't know. I feel like. Yeah, by the way, they got to trade Mike not... Muscala just for his dad's tweets about Jimmy Butler. Yeah, that was. That was... <laughs> um, but I think they might have to start both of Fultz and Reddick, and. Just for now, at least. Like, they need someone in there that can shoot. Yeah. I mean, the other options are, like, like TJ McConnell or whatever. But, like, you can't yeah. really play Redick and McConnell against starting lineups. Right. So, I don't Too know. Short. I feel like if you start, I guess, Redick, Fultz, Butler, Simmons at the four in a small lineup and Embiid, like, I don't know. It's not great. It's not terrible. And then I was just looking up lineup data. It doesn't. By the looks of it, it doesn't look like Fultz and Redick have shared the court for a single second yet this season. So That's I don't know. Weird. Maybe they don't do that. Um, I think it, it kind of screams to a trade being, you know, a, a trade being necessary, right? Because, like, the Sixers aren't going to really try to roll up into the playoffs with this sort of confusion in their lineup. Like, especially if Wilson Chandler isn't healthy. But even if Wilson Chandler is healthy, I, I don't think he's like that. I don't know. They just need another guy. They need another, like, another wing player basically just to sort of solidify the rotation i mean like do you see them going on the either in the trade market because they do have some contracts left to trade um or you know do you see them maybe picking up a veteran buyout like a guy who could be a candidate is like kyle corver is probably going to be bought out or traded eventually by the the cavaliers and you know he started his career in, in philadelphia i'm sure he wouldn't mind 
you know, going there for a while. Yeah, I think, I mean, everyone wants that to happen, I think. Um, and it just makes too much sense, I feel like, for it not to. And obviously, you know, whether it happens in a trade, I don't think they would have to give up that much to get him regardless. But mm-hmm. they can also probably just, like, wait out the buyout market. Like, they had a whole lot of success playing the buyout market last year. So That's true. Um, I think they might just be willing to wait and do that again. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody really thought last year when they picked up Marco Bellinelli and Ursan Ilyasova that that was going to launch them toward this 16-game winning streak and into the second round of the playoffs. But uh, they've proven that, that you know, the right fit and the right pieces can uh, pay big dividends. So I, I would expect, you know, the roster to look a little bit different uh, moving forward. But the Fultz thing, I mean, I almost wonder if they wouldn't have preferred to include him in this deal instead of Saric. Mm. Like, do you think that that his trade value is such that, like, the Wolves would have said no to that? I, I feel like at this point, because Fultz is such a question mark, he can't be the main piece in the deal. And I very much felt like Saric was the main piece. I mean, like, Covington is, and Saric right now are actually probably about equivalent as players, but I think Saric is probably looked at as having more upside. Um but, I mean, I, I just don't think you can really say, like, hey, Markel Fultz is that guy. We traded for him specifically uh, in this in this Butler deal. We targeted him and then, you know, have that insecurity hang over their heads. Which, again, I have to really have to say, like, Markel Fultz, obviously, the, the shot and everything like that, it, it's it's very confusing and everything like that. But he does have some skill, man. I mean, he is number one pick for number, for a reason. I mean, he's had a But the reason, the reason he was number one pick was because he, like, he had all those skills, but also he was able to just, like, hit pull-up jump shots on the regular. Yeah, for sure. I'm not saying he's lived up to the billing. I'm just saying he's had some moments where he's looked all right and, like, in a normal situation where he can get more time to develop, a better opportunity to develop where he doesn't have to play alongside another non-shooter um, who also wants to play point guard. Like, I don't know. He could have been better. But, yeah, I, in this case, I think if you're Minnesota, and especially, and we could talk about this later on, but I just don't think Thibodeau wanted any sort of development projects at all. He wanted ready-made players. Mm-hmm. I. I wouldn't be surprised that the Sixers did not want to include Fultz. Like the Timberwolves might not have wanted it anyway, and like you guys were saying, there's reasons why you wouldn't want him to be the centerpiece of a deal when you trade a star. But I, I have a feeling the Sixers didn't even want to move him anyway. They, whether we agree with it or not, like for whatever reason, they definitely see him like internally, like they, um, they valued Fultz a lot more than Sarge. Yeah, and by the way, Sarge is off to a pretty you know terrible, terrible start. start. Like he, he's obviously he's a better player. Um, than what he's shown this year, but uh, it, it hasn't been pretty for for Saric, who's shooting thirty six percent from the field. Um, I feel like every game I watch him, he's been battling foul trouble as well. Like his playmaking isn't as useful because he's not touching the ball as much. Um, I don't know, but I think it, it'll be a better situation for him in Minnesota for sure. Um, moving on to the rest of the Eastern Conference, how do you think? Teams like um, the Celtics, the Raptors, Milwaukee, and maybe even Indiana. How do you think those teams react to this move? Because I think it's kind of undeniable that, yeah, I mean, there are some questions, but Philadelphia is undeniably more dangerous after making this trade. Yeah, I don't think that I'm ready to like put them on the level of uh, Boston or Toronto or, frankly, even Milwaukee yet. Um and at least until I see kind of like how it looks and whether they do add another shooter. And like, I think they have a lot of rotational stuff that they have to figure out, but in terms of just pure talent, like they're a hundred percent up there uh, among the best teams in the East. Uh, I just think they have to figure out how to make that talent fit together in such a way that 
uh, you know, that they can play with those teams. Because Milwaukee, I mean, I don't know. They have one superstar player, like a really good complementary piece, and then just a bunch of supporting pieces that happen to, like, fit the style of play that they're playing and fit, you know, that one superstar that they have extremely well. And that's, you know, what the Sixers don't really have. You know, they have all this talent, but the fit is quite imperfect. So mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, I, I need some time to to see how it looks um, before I'm ready to put them in that conversation. But, I mean, if you just look at, like, the Sixers have played all three of those teams that they're supposed to be battling for Eastern Conference supremacy with, and they've gotten destroyed by all of them. Yeah. Um, and like the one that sticks out in my mind is that, that game against the Raptors where Ben Simmons just got absolutely dominated by Kawhi Leonard, had the ball taken away from him like four or five different times, like couldn't make any inroads offensively. 11 times. Um, yeah. And so I just think, you know, having a guy who can alleviate a bit of the offensive pressure from him and, and the defensive pressure as well, like who can handle a matchup like that uh, is going to be really important for them. And just like having another guy like, tends to make things easier for everybody else on the roster. Yeah, and I don't think, like, the other East teams that are kind of in that mix, I don't think any of them should or will make any sort of, like, reactionary move or panic move because of the butt. Like, I think they all accept the fact that the Sixers got a lot better yesterday, but I don't think anyone's making a panic move. I still think um, the Raptors know that they still have the best player in the conference in any playoff matchup. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and probably the deepest team as well, the Celtics. Despite their struggles, I, I don't, I don't know how concerned they are, but I think they still have faith in their, um, in their like top tier talent and their depth. And then the Bucks, you know, I, the Bucks shouldn't want to change anything right now. They've found something that works for the first time in years, and I think they're just going to keep riding it. So, I think it, it's like a weird middle ground where they all accept that Philly got a lot better and is more of a threat than they were 48 hours ago. But I also think they're all still comfortable enough in their own skin where I, like there's no drastic moves coming. Um, well, to that regard, then, do you think the Sixers might have overreacted a little bit to this start? Because um, I don't know. I mean, when you lose by 18 points to the Celtics on opening night, and then uh, you know a couple a week later, basically you lose to the Bucks. Um, by 15 and then you lose the Raptors by 17 um it does kind of I don't know it just kind of puts in things into perspective as to where the Sixers were and I think everyone expected the Sixers to make this jump and it wasn't happening and do you think that new front office there headed up by Elton Brand who basically just got uh promoted from running the G League team to running the the big club um you know coming into the season like do you feel like they panicked a little bit and, and not really finish the process because i think like I, I don't know i mean they still have some residual pieces from the process but it, it very much felt like they decided you know what this this whole rebuilding thing and everything like that like we, we've obviously gone through that period now it's the time to push our chips in and you know did they panic a little bit because of their poor start and also like is butler that guy to complete the process for them right because they're gonna have to resign uh butler i mean reports suggest that you know the two sides are gonna move towards that now we'll have to see how the season goes and you know, maybe some uh, changes will happen. But for now, it seems like they're going to basically make Butler the third piece of uh, their puzzle. And, you know, eventually Simmons is going to command a max. Butler's going to be on a max. Embiid's already locked into a max. Fultz is actually on a pretty expensive deal because number one picks are paid, you know, accordingly. Like, this is the team going forward. Um, And so, you know, is Butler that guy? 
Well, first of all, like I don't think it's a panic trade just because the assets that they're sending out are not such, you know, high end, like high upside prospects that, uh, you know, this is really going to come back to haunt them down the road, regardless of whether it works out as well as they might hope. So it doesn't smell like panic to me. And I think, you know, this is a trade that I kind of would have expected them to try and make in the offseason. Anyway, we called them an offseason loser because of how sure. sort of, you know, uneventful their offseason was when they had all these plans to make big moves. So I actually think, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of surprised that we didn't see them make this move earlier. But I think their start confirmed a lot of the concerns that uh, people had about the team going into the season and that they had lost some shooting, which has certainly borne out uh, in their start. And, you know, that they just weren't quite as deep um, as as they needed to be. And, like, that's obviously still an issue. But as far as just, like, top-end talent, um they're, I think, in a position to overcome their lack of depth, at least to a certain extent. So there's that to consider. Like, I don't, I don't think it was a panic move. I think it was ultimately a good move on balance. Um, wh- whether Butler is the guy to kind of help them take that next step, I, I can't, like, I can't answer that right now. I, I sort of thought that he was that guy for Minnesota as well. Like, this is a very similar situation, very similar. obviously accepting the fact that the, the you know the wolves had never had the kind of success that Philly has had without Butler he goes to a team with these two you know young uh up and coming quote unquote stars and you know everybody kind of expects that he as this veteran you know sort of demanding accomplished teammate is going to be the one who helps them take that next step and it obviously completely combusted in Minnesota i think that the guys in Philly are going to command a little bit more respect from him than the Wolves guys did but well um, these guys actually play defense that's I think that's the, probably the biggest difference yeah I think well, and they're is. just better in general yeah right yeah, like he's what sure. he, he walked onto that Timberwolves team and he was immediately the best player on that team and yeah. I don't think that's the case here right like I think Embiid is still their best player mm-hmm. and um but that said like you know there there's certainly some combustion potential here and the fact that the on-court fit is imperfect, I think, has the potential to spill over into the locker room if things don't go as well as they think they might. Yeah, and, like, you know, it, it's almost a double-edged sword in a way because, yes, they're obviously, like, the Embiid-Simmons combo is um, well more accomplished at the NBA level than the, the Towns-Wiggins duo was when Butler joined Minnesota. But what comes with that is... Embiid especially, but Simmons also, they see themselves as alphas. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was a criticism of Towns and Wiggins forever, that neither of those guys kind of carried themselves like that. And Butler didn't didn't gel with that. But now he's going to a situation where these two young guys are more accomplished, and they both do see themselves as alphas. So is Jimmy going to, like, appreciate that and almost gravitate towards that? Or is he, um, he going to push back, you know, in very Butler-esque fashion to remind them that he's now the alpha in that locker room. Like it, it's, it could be the same issues just like because of a different problem. Yeah. But I mean, I, I do think that Butler is very incentivized um, to be on his best behavior this season, regardless of sort of how it goes and how awkward it might be. He kind of just has to kind of swallow his pride a little bit. I mean, I, I know that sounds ridiculous saying that about Butler right now, considering sort of the antics he pulled off in Minnesota, but like, you know, he has such a big payday riding on the line that, um, you know, once you force your move out, as we've seen, you know, in the case of Kawhi, for example, right, you know, not happy with San Antonio, forces his way out, goes to Toronto. At that point, once you got your trade, you just have to come up and play. 
And I think Kawhi's done a good job of that. And I think Butler basically has to do the same thing. Um, it's a bit different situation because then Butler has to, you know, coexist with these two guys, like you guys mentioned. But um, he should well, he be, has to prove should also be that, on like, his best he, behavior. He has to prove that he can actually win. I mean, like, he has well, talked big talk. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, he hasn't accomplished all that much, at, at least as far as team success is concerned. Yeah. You know, he's he's been a great individual player, you know, been all-NBA all defense. Um, we, we know how good he is, but um, you know those Bulls teams never advance past the second round of the playoffs. Obviously, the Wolves, you know, they end their playoff drought, but they get bounced in the first round. If he can't make it work on the Sixers with the amount of talent that he has around him, I think that's going to raise big questions about uh, you know how much team success he can actually affect. Yeah. And, and look, also it's, think, it's also not a guarantee that he gets that money, right? I mean, like, it's a pretty expensive contract. It's going to be about $190 million over five seasons if the Sixers give him the full max. Like, are you sure you want to give Butler that contract when he turns 30 next year? Like, we've seen, like, I, look at Chris Paul right now. Like, I, giving that super max to a player who is in his 30s is a, a difficult decision to make. Yeah, I definitely would not want to give him that contract. Um, um I, this is a guy with a, he was a late bloomer, but yet because of the fact that when he did bloom, it was under Thibodeau, he still has a lot of miles on that body and a lot of wear and tear. Like, yeah, Thibodeau minutes have raged on that guy's body, um, and he's going to be thirty soon. Like, yeah, you you just don't want to be paying the new max to that guy when he's 33, 34, 35. Um, but you know, the Sixers will also be in a tough spot because you can't trade. Um, Sar- like, as bad of a start as he had Sarge was part of their future he was like a product of the process and so you can't trade like a piece like that and even Covington was like very much a glue guy for them and a pick for like a rental type player because as good as the Sixers are they're not that close you know like mm-hmm. you only make that kind of trade if you're really like all all in on winning a title this year and they're not um, they did this for the future so you just can't make that trade and then not try to keep them so I think you know whether they believe he's worth the five-year max or not, I think they've kind of backed themselves into a corner of having to give that to him. I don't think I'd say too, and we haven't really talked about it. Um, not that I think it's necessarily fair, but I do think this is probably now officially the first time um, in his tenure in Philly that Brett Brown will be facing some serious pressure to win. Oh yeah. Um, they, you know, they broke out last year. There was obviously expectations this year and they haven't got off to the greatest start, but you know, you make a deal like this now. And if things go sideways, if they still don't, you know, kind of like find a fit here offensively, if they're still bottom five in the league in turnovers again by the end of the year, and if those things cause them to flame out early, I, I think we're going to start hearing some questions about Brett Brown. Yeah. And look, this is now, he was hired by Hinky a long time ago, and he stuck it out. He's been a great culture guy. He's, you know, face to press. I mean, I think he's deserved to get that contract extension. Which I think was the last thing Colangelo did before he got canned was um, extend Brett Brown. Because I think like two days after that, that's when the whole Twitter scandal happened. Um, but this is now like two more GMs have been hired since Brett Brown was there. So, you know, like basically right now his his value is continuity and sort of keeping the locker room together. And if he can't do that with this team, then yeah, I think the Sixers have a pretty good excuse to go get another guy. Let's, uh, let's circle back to the Timberwolves and end the podcast there. Um, do you think this is the best deal the Timberwolves could have gotten? And do you think the Timberwolves regret letting Tom Thibodeau run the whole negotiations? I don't 
think it's the best deal they could have gotten. I think I would have probably preferred to take that heat package with Josh Richardson and uh, Kelly Olynyk. Uh, Richardson's been great this year, and I think you know a lot of people saw it coming. Like mm. he he showed signs of kind of making that next step last year, and I he's think he's twenty one points a game right now. Yeah, like I don't think he. I don't know that he's ever going to be like a primary offensive option for a contending team, mm-hmm. but as a secondary guy who can also be a primary defensive option. Yeah. Um, and, and given his contract, I mean, he is in the first year of a four year deal that is incredibly reasonable yep. um, and extremely team friendly. So I think if we're comparing assets, like I don't think that they got anything close to that good back from Philadelphia. Um, but I think the, you know, the reporting was that Miami had pulled Richardson from their offers in recent days. So that offer wasn't on the table, I guess, at the time that they made this move, but that was on the table at one point in time. Uh, and they tried to hold that for something better. And I think it came back to bite them. Um, and, and as far as whether they regret letting Thibodeau run this whole thing, I can't imagine that they don't. This was a, an utter fiasco. Yeah. One, sure. And like, just like one of the more embarrassing franchise <laughs> blunders in recent NBA history. <laughs> Um, if you think about if you think about just like how how much damage I think Butler did to like the Wolves season to me is is functionally over and if they'd gone into this season with the roster that they have now having made this trade I think I still might have like been willing to peg them as a, you know a seven or eight seed in the West or at least a team that was going to be able to like compete for a playoff spot but I just think like they they have to pick up the pieces now and like figure out how they're going to move forward after all this happened and I just think. Like how how do the guys in that locker room trust Thibodeau after all this? You know, like oh, you can't. With, you know, those new guys are coming into a situation like where I don't know, man. I, it just seems like it's it's not going to be a healthy culture, you know, even for the rest of the season. And maybe they can find a way to reboot next year, but um, this this feels like a lost season to me already, and it just didn't have to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they got the best possible package they can get, but I, I think that's a product of them waiting as long as they did. I think once once the season started, we pretty much knew that um, Jimmy Butler's trade value is basically decreasing by the day. Um, and if, you know, if the reports are true that Jimmy Butler indicated as, as early as April or May or whenever it was, th- that he probably wanted out, and it took until, what are we in now, November? So we're yeah. looking at like six, it took like half a year for them to get to this point and, and the package they got doesn't really justify that. So, I mean, I, I don't think they did that badly considering it was in season. I, I think a Sarge Covington in the second round or whatever, but a Sarge Covington package isn't bad for a midseason trade. I just think that they could have done better and almost surely could have done better if they just were quicker with a trigger on this. But I, I honestly think that it was just all based on Tom Tudor's stubbornness. Like I got, I bet you Tom Thibodeau, even as recently as like a couple weeks ago when the reports were that they were at least temporarily pulling him off the table, like in his heart of hearts, at the back of his mind, he probably believed that there was like a chance that they could turn it around and convince Jimmy to stick around. Like that's just who Tom Thibodeau is. Yeah, for sure. And I think when you think about this whole trade negotiation and everything that went on, like the cost of it really wasn't about 
even like the Josh Richardson thing, like, okay, there's an opportunity cost in not getting him, but like the cost of basically keeping Butler around was exactly what he said it was going to be. Like he caused a ruckus. This whole organization looks like a joke because of how they handled this whole thing, right? Like I think Butler, he did tell the team, uh, at least that's what he's saying publicly uh, to Rachel Nichols, um, was that, yeah, he told the team like three, four days after the the, the Rockets eliminated them in five games, you know, I want to be traded, right? And then there was the whole summertime. And, like, you know, that's generally speaking how trade demands are, are um, carried out by star players, right? You tell the team and you give them a lot of time to try to do it and during a time when they had a great opportunity to. I mean, think about what happened since then. The draft happened. Free agency happened. All of the summertime happened, right? There's a lot of time for a team to go out there and get a good deal. But it seemed very much like, you know, like you mentioned, Thibodeau didn't really take it seriously. And so eventually Butler was like, all right, well, I got to take situations in my own hand. And then the result of that was, you know, Carl Anthony Towns' reputation takes a massive hit. Andrew Wiggins' reputation takes a massive hit, right? The, the spotlight is now firmly on those two guys. They're now being labeled as underachievers. And even if that was true beforehand, at least that spotlight wasn't on them. Now it really is on them because of how publicly the Butler thing played out. Um you know, Tom Thibodeau looks terrible in terms of as an executive. Maybe even as a coach. We don't know, really. But, you know, as a defensive coach, this team has not defended very well. And then as an executive, I mean, this whole thing just played out so, so poorly, right? It got to the point where even, you know, ownership. Glenn Taylor had to step in and basically had to, like, you know, make sure this deal gets through. Because this whole Butler saga couldn't go on any longer. And and, and quite honestly, I mean, it's obviously a tricky balance. Like, uh, this, I'm sure star players have asked to be traded. I think Kobe asked to be traded, right? Imagine what the Lakers would have done if, you know, if they actually came to his demand of trading him to, like, the Clippers or the Bulls w- way back when, right? Like, star players do get traded, but you need some level of gravitas. You need some level of stability and leadership. And, like, this whole thing basically stemmed on the fact that the Timberwolves had no leadership. They had no um, organizational structure and, like, Again, this whole organization looks like a joke, and even though they got some of these these players back, like it just it, it didn't have to be as ugly as it did. And I think um, I think that's probably what they regret more than anything else. Also, Josh Richardson really having a nice year. I, I can't believe he's playing this well. He, he's got like a bit of a Chris Middleton trajectory to him. He's yeah, I, I, he's really good. And again, just like that contract is so team friendly. Um, and I think the Wolves might end up kicking themselves for not acquiring him when they had a chance. Um, but more than that, I just, what, what other franchise would put its franchise player in the position that they put Carl Anthony Towns in? Seriously. You know, like, they, like they tab this guy as their guy, they give him a max extension uh-huh. and then they feed him to the Wolves, you know, no pun intended, but like, holy crap. I, I just, I cannot believe that. Like, and if I was him, I, I mean, I know he hasn't really, held up his end of the bargain so far he's had a pretty rough start to the year but i kind of don't blame him you know after the all the the drama that went on this summer and and the way that he was kind of personally attacked in the midst of all that Mm -hmm. to have to go out and start the season with with jimmy butler still on the team and still acting like it was his team like how would you like how would you react to something like that i mean i understand he got his money so you know i I'm, i'm not saying like i feel bad for the guy but I kind of also am saying that. Like, I kind of feel bad for the guy. I think that this is a good opportunity for a fresh start there. And, um, yeah, I don't actually expect it to be the case. But I think if they want, if everyone there wants what's best for that franchise, at least in the short term, I think Tom Thibodeau should come out and just say, look, like, all right, got this new team that's trending younger now. We can play, like, different styles, whatever. But Carl Anthony Towns is the focal point of this team. 
Mm. When he's on the court, offensively especially, like he is the focal point of this team at all times. He needs to touch the ball on every offensive possession he's on the court. Um, just everything has to flow through him. And like Tom Thibodeau needs to make that clear, and I don't think he will because even before Jimmy Butler got there, Carl Anthony Towns probably could have been featured more in the offense than he was. So, I, I mean, I'm interested to see that. Uh, you guys know how I feel about Cat. I think. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think we all share the same opinion of him offensively. I think the guy's a transcendent talent for a big man, but he hasn't really been empowered to um, explore all of those talents. And I hope that this is the fresh start that he and the, the Timberwolves need to like go all into that because they have, you know, they really shouldn't have any other choice but to go all into it. Look at the contract they just gave him. Well, they do have a former MVP on the roster having a comeback year in Derrick Rose, who, by the way, leads the team in usage percentage because, of course, of course. Oh, geez. Yeah. Look, man, before, before we have Derrick Rose and there, Andrew Wiggins had a higher usage than Carl Anthony Towns. So, mm. well, there you go. Um, I think that does it for our emergency reaction podcast. I think, yeah, like I said out top, man, I'm very relieved to uh, not talk about the Jimmy Butler trade saga again and maybe talk about more about Jimmy Butler, the player, and how he fits. I think we're going to be keeping a close eye on that in Philadelphia. As for Minnesota, unfortunately, I think without all this drama, they're going back to irrelevance. Um, They are, I think, the second worst team in the Western Conference right now. Yeah, they're 14th in the West, only ahead of the uh, Phoenix Suns, which is, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. But the Timberwolves had their very, very brief day in the sun, and then it was gone just like that. Anyway, thanks to both Cash and Wolfon for doing this. Again, apologies to the, the quality of the podcast. It might be a little bit off because it was uh, recorded um, not in studio. But uh, we'll be back next week to talk more on Pound the Rock. 